the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Galcedon Report number 86, October 1972. Herman Kahn, director of the Hudson Institute, recently predicted that the counter-counterculture will dominate the next decade. There is, he holds, a growing reaction against the moods and ideas which dominated the 1960s. Quote, The pendulum has swung too far. We've abandoned too many traditional values and we haven't replaced them with satisfactory new values. Unquote. He believes that the upper middle class, the communications people, educators and students and city planners, quote, are all basically out of touch with reality. Unquote. Crime in the streets has aroused anger in the great majority of Americans. He holds that 67% of America is, quote, quite square and getting squarer, unquote, and that this is, quote, the biggest thing going in America today, and it will either dominate or heavily influence the next decade or two, unquote. Kahn favors this trend and adds, quote, I have a strong desire to give life a kind of meaning and purpose that can only come out of revealed religion, unquote. He regrets that he cannot believe in a revealed truth, but he insists that there is meaning to life. Kahn criticizes the claims that the United States is a racist society and adds, quote, No one has ever shown any good results from busing, unquote. Quote, Herman Kahn, The Squaring of America, unquote. An interview by Jonathan Ward in Intellectual Digest, Volume 3, Number 1, September 1972, pages 16 through 19. Kahn's opinions usually carry weight, and without agreeing with him, we should give attention to his statements. Others have given similar reports. Furlong has called attention to the fact that, whereas in the 1960s, it was the alienated students on college campuses who dominated the scene. Today, it is increasingly the alienated working man and middle-class citizen of our cities. These people are angry at what has happened to their neighborhoods. They resent higher taxes, busing, corrupt politics, crime, and senseless change for change's sake. They are ready to make peace with law-abiding blacks and are doing so, to fight against politicians and bureaucrats. Such people, quote, are not trying to change the system so much as they are trying to change the politicians who exploit it, unquote. 
These people are the, quote, non-mobiles, unquote, the people who do not move but remain in a fixed neighborhood. Quote, the white ethnic blue-collar workers generally remain non-mobile through these years. After World War II, often living in well-defined pockets of the inner city, unquote. William Barry Furlong, quote, profile of an alienated voter, unquote. In Saturday Review, Volume 55, Number 31, July 29, 1972, pages 48 through 51. A similar protest has developed to a degree among many middle-class and upper-middle-class men. Companies who used to move men freely across country and to promote only by moving are now beginning to cut down on this process. Too many good men now refuse to move and resent the rootlessness which has marked executive and professional life since World War II. There is thus a markedly different mood now than that which marked the years from World War II to 1970. It is conservatism of a sort, and more than a few have welcomed it as a sign of great changes ahead of a happier kind than those of recent years. Are they right? But before answering that question, let us examine a very important area of the new conservatism, one which is intense in its criticism of, quote, big government, unquote. Of ideas of a scientific elite controlling man and society, of a growing bureaucracy, and much more. This sector of the new conservatism is the growing number of, quote, men's magazines, unquote, which emphasize nudity, free love, and a laissez-faire attitude toward sexuality. In example, the abolition of all laws governing sexual conduct. Less well known to many is the fact that these publications carry the laissez-faire attitude into other areas. Joe Goldberg, in his study Big Bunny, The Inside Story of Playboy, New York, Ballantine, 1967, called attention to the fact that one of Hugh M. Hefner's favorite authors is Anne Rand, page 64. Playboy accordingly manifests a continuing critique of strong civil government and a hostility to statism. Other magazines of the same general nature are equally vocal in their critique of statism and scientism. Thus, Al Goldstein has called various federal acts and B.F. Skinner's book Beyond Freedom and Dignity and, quote, outrage against the soul, unquote. Goldstein sees 1984 and Orwell's nightmare looming ahead and speaks of the, quote, outrage, unquote, of status controls over man. Quote, the Senate Finance Committee voted to require that all children entering the first grade after January 1st, 1974, be assigned Social Security numbers. The rationale for this dictator's dream is that of combating welfare cheaters since duplicating numbers would be ended. Under the present law, a person normally obtains a number when he is first employed. Since FBI dozers are increasing in number and scope for each and every American, it seems only reasonable that Big Brother now wants to poke his nose into the kindergartens and diapers of our youth. Unquote. Al Goldstein, quote, The Garbage Pail, Outrage Against the Soul, unquote, 
in Cavalier, Volume 22, Number 10, August 1972, pages 6 through 10. This is not an isolated example. The hostility to and sense of outrage over statism and scientism is very strong in such circles, and it appears on both sides of the Iron Curtain. A, quote, fantastic tale, unquote, by, quote, Vlas Tenen, unquote, Moscow Nights, a product of Russian underground literature, reflects the feeling of pornographic bitterness in intellectual circles in the Soviet Union for statism and scientism. A song sung by the youth of the underground is savage in its hatred of scientific socialist planning, which aims at playing God, seeking to make figs grow among Eskimos and snow to fall in the Sahara, according to the song. The song also says, Those bastard scientists just for a bet have turned the whole world on its head, whether it's rabbits they deal with or man, the scientist couldn't give a damn. Las Tenen, Moscow Nights, page 80, New York, Olympia, 1971. It would be easy to pile up data and make a case for Herman Kahn's belief that we are moving into a counter-counterculture. In fact, some might call it a counter-revolutionary mood. Even some of the Black Panther leaders have of late rejected revolutionary action in favor of legal process. The important thing is this. Is there anything in this new conservatism which offers hope for the future? We must remember that the closer Rome drew to its collapse, the more it railed against the tightening noose of statist power, looking nostalgically to the past, and blundered ahead to its death. The new conservatism is very heavily marked by neo-anarchism, so that its very conservatism is in essence a radicalism. The new conservatism wants all the benefits which the state provides, but not the state itself, an impossible picture. It wants a strong state to enforce its particular interests, such as ecological controls, welfareism, anti-racist legislation, and much more. But it wants a laissez-faire attitude with respect to sexual regulations neighborhood schools, and busing, privacy, and much more. To create a powerful state in certain areas of life means to create a powerful state which will not stay out of other areas. A power state which has the power of life and death over industry will exercise the same power over the little people of the country, whose ability to withstand civil power is much less than that of, quote, big business. Unquote. The stronger man makes the state, the weaker he makes himself. Thus, the new conservatism is very much a meaningless protest. Lacking a consistent philosophy, it can only win battles, never a war. It may succeed in its middle class and working man's forms in stopping busing, although even this is dubious, and it may stop a few other things, but it will not check the growth of statist power. In its neo-anarchistic forms, this neoconservatism may gain far more drastic abolition of sexual regulations, and it may win some victories for personal privacy, but it is also increasing statist controls by some of its other demands. 
and even more serious weakness marks the new conservatism, the older conservatism, still present in the middle class, was marked by serious weaknesses and a divorce from its Christian roots. It had, however, this virtue. It was still production-oriented. The very deadly flaw of the new conservatism is that it is consumption-oriented, a fact seldom appreciated in that in most decadent and dying societies there is a strong nostalgia for the past and a rootless and sentimental conservatism. The faith that made the long-for past is dead, but the longing for its fruits is widespread. Today, for example, the Puritanism of early America, its strong belief in the sovereignty of God, its emphasis on God's law, and its insistence on godly order are all gone. But the antiquarian interest in early America is at an all-time high. Antiques command a growing price. Early Americana of all kinds is prized. Books on Americana sell at a rapid pace. And interest in the past has spread to Indian culture, early French-American culture, and early Spanish-American culture. A similar nostalgia for an interest in the past is common in Europe. This interest, however, is a part of the problem. It is a part of the consumption-oriented mentality which wants to enjoy the best of the past, present, and future to consume and to enjoy rather than to produce. Frederick here in The Medieval World, 1962, writes of the, quote, open Europe, unquote, of 1100. Men traveled freely from England through Russia, from Europe to Byzantium, and from Europe to the Islamic world. Trade routes were well-traveled and intermarriages were common. Even in Spain, despite the combat, marriages between Islamic, Jewish, and Hispano-Christian families, especially among the aristocracy and merchant classes, were common. In addition to the commercial travel, there was a great deal of movement across frontiers by pilgrims. Commercial travel is still very much with us, but pilgrims have been replaced by tourists, a significant fact. The pilgrim was moved by a strong faith and a vision of the kingdom of God on earth. The tourist is concerned with seeing the past before it disappears. The tourist sees greatness in the past. The pilgrim sees it in the past in order to establish it in the present and the future. A consumption-oriented conservatism thus looks to the past, builds museums, establishes national forests, and works to conserve a heritage in its outward forms. It often accomplishes worthwhile goals in its nostalgia. Winning some battles, it loses the war, because it sees no greatness ahead for man, only disaster. A production-oriented conservatism will not neglect the past, but it will regard today and tomorrow as man's best opportunity and his truest hope. The older middle-class conservatism is still with us, and it is still production-oriented. But having lost its Christian moorings, it has become rootless, and it has drifted into alien waters. Moreover, as a result of its humanism, it has picked up three ideas which are the essence of socialism in its every form. Increasingly, conservatives are ready to accept one or more of these premises, and in all too many cases, all three. These three ideas are, first, 
a belief in the conflict of interest instead of holding that basic to reality is God's sovereign government and law and an overriding governing and ultimate harmony of all interest. Most conservatives accept dialectical, existential, pragmatic, or Hegelian philosophies with their principle of a conflict of interest. The theory of evolution makes conflict and the struggle for survival, the basic aspect of biological reality. As a result, the philosophy of a conflict of interest, the economic form of which is the doctrine of class struggle, saturates both left and right. Second, both Marxists and many, quote, conservatives, unquote, are agreed on the belief in a capitalist conspiracy behind all events, and some leftist periodicals are beginning to praise, quote, conservative, unquote, literature on this subject. Third, Lenin called the acceptance of status central banking and a paper currency, quote, nine-tenths, unquote, of socialism. All too many, quote, conservatives, unquote, are ready to demand both of these things as their hope. The, quote, funny money, unquote, advocates are as, quote, conservative, unquote, as Lenin. Philosophically and religiously, most conservatism is bankrupt and intellectually in contradiction to itself. Morally, too, there is a bleak outlook for the, quote, counter, counterculture, unquote. The amount of shoplifting today is an important factor in the price of many items. But great as this shoplifting is, the amount of theft by officials and employees in any business or shop is far greater. In many areas, theft adds more to the price of goods than do taxes. The most difficult part of any business today is very often the finding of honest employees. There is nothing modest about the stealing. One businessman recently stated that he discovered, in tracing only a portion of his losses by theft, that the daily profit to only a few employees was far greater than that of himself and his partner. Thefts, in fact, were endangering his survival, and his situation was no worse than that of many other businessmen, and even better. The moral collapse apparent in all classes is very grave and very deep. Robert N. Winterberger, in the Washington Payoff, 1972, gives a telling account, as a former lobbyist, of corruption in Washington, D.C. He is naive in believing that knowledge of these facts will arouse the country and save the nation. The corruption in Washington, and in capitals all over the world, is a corruption which reflects the life and morality of the people. Knowledge of these facts has no long-term effect. Men are not saved by knowledge, but by the grace of God. It is not knowledge of corruption or of conspiracies, or of evil, which will revitalize man and society, but a knowledge of God's grace and His law word. The, quote, counter-counterculture, unquote, is a futile thing. It longs for the past when it should be building for the future. Man is in trouble, and the humanistic state is in trouble also. God is not in trouble, nor are we, if we stand in terms of His government and his law word. Quote, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Unquote. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Your life depends on it.
Calcine Report Number 87, November 1972. An idea very heavily promoted by humanists in recent years and unfortunately picked up by all too many Christians is that we are moving into a post-Christian era. According to this belief, the Christian centuries have come to an end and we are now moving into a new age. Some call it the era of scientific humanism, others of scientific socialism, and still others call it the age of Aquarius. For the occultist, as of old, this is the, quote, third age, unquote, of their third world era. The occultist, Foster Bailey, in The Spirit of Masonry, 1957, wrote that, quote, the Jewish dispensation came to an end, and the Christian dispensation began with the passing of our son into the sign Pisces, the fishes. Today, we are passing rapidly into another sign, the sign Aquarius, unquote. The theologians who get their doctrine from the popular press and the streets have echoed this humanistic course, and they tell us we are in a post-Christian era. Is this true? With the waning of the, quote, middle, unquote, ages, Europe moved into an anti-Christian era which culminated in the Renaissance. The church was largely captured by cynical humanists who treated it as a prize to be exploited. The Reformation and the Counter-Reformation were reactions against this, and they strove to recapture church, state, school, and society for Christian faith. In varying degrees, this was done. Humanism, however, was revived in the Enlightenment. It began its conquest of Christendom. It embarked on a deliberate and determined anti-Christian and post-Christian era. Historians have long masked and underplayed the militant anti-Christianity of the Enlightenment thinkers and their successors. It is to credit of Peter Gay's work, The Enlightenment, two volumes, that he develops this aspect of their thought. It was clearly central. With the 18th century, Europe moved steadily into a post-Christian era. Every area of life was steadily divorced from Christianity and reinterpreted in humanistic terms. True, there were Christian counter-movements against this humanistic culture, but because these were largely pietistic, they did not challenge humanism as such. In fact, because pietism came to emphasize soul-saving above all else, it became thereby humanistic also. It put man at the center of its gospel, whereas Christ said, quote, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Unquote. Matthew 6.33 The shorter catechism had taught, quote, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Unquote. Now humanism and religion had come to agree that the glory of man is the end and purpose of all things. The 18th and 19th centuries were humanistic and anti-Christian in their basic motives, and yet they were very largely influenced by still powerful Christian standards also. In the sciences and in various other areas of study, not only did Christian scholars predominate, but the idea of an ultimate and God-created order still governed men's minds. In philosophy, God had been abandoned in everyday life as well as the sciences. He was still the ultimate power, although receding in centrality. With Darwin and Freud, 
Humanism abandoned the God concept and at the same time committed suicide. For Darwin, not God, but chance is essentially ultimate, although traces of providence still are strong in his system. The basic emphasis, however, was away from God's design to chance variations and natural selection. Instead of an ultimate mind, man lived against the background of an ultimate meaningless and man was depreciated. If all the area surrounding a man's house is suddenly turned into a dump, then that man's house is not only depreciated, but possibly rendered untenable as rodents take over the area. Similarly, humanism as it dispensed with God dispensed also with the meaning, purpose, and dignity of life. Fraud furthered this process, knowing full well what he was doing to humanism thereby. However, holding to an evolutionary position, he reduced mind to a frail latecomer whose every working was an outcropping of primitive motives from the unconscious. Philosophy could not very well survive under this premise. Darwin himself wrote in 1881 that, quote, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind, if there are any convictions in such a mind? Unquote. Francis Darwin, editor, The Life and Letters of Charles Darwin, Volume 2, page 285, New York, Basic Books, 1959. The effect of this collapse of humanism was apparent in every area of life. Prideaux has observed of Delacroix, quote, He was the last painter in whom the humanist renaissance conception as a totally manifested itself with poetic fervor. Unquote. Tom Prideaux, The World of Delacroix, page 12, New York, Silver Burdett, 1966. Since Delacroix, humanists have presented us with a limited world, then a fragmented world, and now an exploded and dying world. Suicidism has possessed the humanist. Fiddler has cited this weariness with life which marks humanistic writers. Quote, there is a weariness in the West which undercuts the struggle between socialism and capitalism, democracy and autocracy, a weariness with humanism itself which underlies all the movements of our world, a weariness with the striving to be men. It is the end of man which the school of Burroughs foretells, not in terms of doom, but of triumph. Unquote. The writer William Burroughs, to whom Fiddler refers, gives us a quote, vision of the end of man, total death. Unquote. Leslie Fiddler, Waiting for the End, page 168, New York, Stein and Day. 1964. Fiddler is right. Modern humanistic man is, quote, waiting for the end, unquote. The end of every age is marked by certain recurring interests. As meaning from God is abandoned, meaning is sought by man from below in occultism, Satanism, magic, and witchcraft. Rome in its decline was marked by such interests. As Christendom collapsed after the 13th century, these same movements revived and with intensity possessed the minds of despairing men. The same interests are again with us, 
not as signs of the birth of the age of Aquarius, but as evidences of the dying agony of humanism. The men who so declare are as blind as that false Messiah, Woodrow Wilson, who believed that he had a better way than Christ, who held that a war could be fought to end all wars and to make the world safe for democracy, and who felt that paper documents could harness and control the evil goals of men and nations. Wilson's great crusade did not usher in a new world order of peace and prosperity. Rather, it inaugurated the Armageddon of humanism. Franklin Delano Roosevelt embarked on a similar crusade in Europe, and the breakdown of humanism was only hastened. It is not a post-Christian era that we face, but a post-humanistic world. Every thinker who evades that fact is past-oriented and blind. He is incapable of preparing anyone for the realities of our present situation. Humanism on all sides is busy committing harakari. It is disemboweling itself with passion and fervor. It needs no enemies because humanism is now its own worst enemy. We have lived thus far in a post-Christian era, and it is dying. The important question is, what shall we do? We must recognize that this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, opportunity yet to come to Christianity. This is a time of glorious opportunity, a turning point in history, and the wise will prepare for it. True, the church is remarkably incompetent and sterile in the face of this crisis. It has very largely joined the enemy. This, however, has happened before. In the 4th century, the church repeatedly condemned St. Athanasius as the state listed him as a wanted outlaw. He was accused by churchmen of trying to stop the food supply to the capital. He was accused of murder, but the dead man was proven to be alive. He was charged with magic and sorcery and much else, and his life was lived in flight with five periods of exile. All the same, it was Athanasius and not his enemies, nor the powerful churchmen of his day, who shaped the future. History, then as now, is not shaped by majorities, but by men who provide the faith and the ideas for living. Smith has said of modern man, quote, How may we describe the present situation? Man is his own master, and thus aware that there are no bounds to his powers. He can do anything that he wishes to do. He is free and come of age, but he is also the slave of ideologies. He recognizes that his existence as a man carries with it the demand to be himself as a single personal being. In Kierkegaard's phrase, and at the same time he finds himself continually threatened with immersion in the life of the collective. And he even desires this in order that he may evade the hard demand to be a single person. Unquote. Ronald Gregor Smith, quote, post-Renaissance man, unquote, in William Nichols, editor, Conflicting Images of Man, page 32, New York, Seabury Press, 1966. This is an interesting admission, coming as it does from a modernist position. It is an indication of the paralysis and helplessness of humanistic man. Men who are at war with themselves and resentful of life and its requirements are not able to command the future. They cannot even command themselves. Every day our problem is less and less humanism 
and more and more ourselves. Is our life and action productive of a new social order? Are we governed by principles and ideas which will help determine the new direction of history? Is our thinking still directed by sterile statism, and do we believe that the answer to man's problems is to capture the machinery of the state? Or do we recognize that we must first of all be commanded by God before we can effectively command ourselves and our futures? Leslie Fiddler aptly titled his study of the modern mood as reflected in literature waiting for the end. We can add that it also involves waiting for a ready-made answer. The temper of our radicals is a demand for total solutions now. Quite aptly, they call themselves the, quote, now generation, unquote. Quite logically, magic and witchcraft are very closely tied to the, quote, now generation, unquote. Magic and witchcraft offer a mythical alternative to patient work and reconstruction. A few words and formulae, and presto, the desired thinking supposedly appears. In the politics of magic, a few catchphrases are endlessly repeated, some laws passed or some revolutionary action paraded, and presto, paradise should suddenly come, but for the nasty work of the vile reactionaries. Push the right revolutionary button, such is the faith of the, quote, now generation, unquote, and the dream world will emerge. No sweat, only revolutionary heroics in terms of the late, Late movies are radicals and their babysitters grew up with. This generation would do well to remember the words of Christ concerning the kingdom of God, words too rarely if ever preached on. Quote, For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. Unquote. Mark 4.28 There is a spontaneity of growth which is not dependent upon man. The earth brings forth growth, but man must sow the seed, till the field, and work to bring forth the harvest. There must be first faith that results will come, and second work to plant and till for that harvest. Men doubt today that God brings forth His purposed results as they refuse to work for any goals. We live in an age when men want to harvest corn before they have planted it. We live briefly in a political or statist era, a day when men believe in the ability of the state and its politicians to solve problems by means of their legislative hocus-pocus, when the desperate need instead is for faith and work. The important question for a, quote, now generation, unquote, becomes the search for a politician with the right hocus-pocus. But, quote, first the blade, unquote, and the blade cannot appear without a planning. This is the time to create new and free schools, Christian hospitals, independent professional societies, biblically principled, and new enterprises of every kind. The time is now. I recall the words of a supposedly intelligent man speaking in 1939, holding that it was, quote, too late, unquote. No doubt those words are as old as man and still a mark of defeatism and stupidity, still a mark of waiting for ready-made, push-button answers. I recall vividly as a schoolboy being told of automatic, thermostat-controlled heating systems, then a new thing as the forerunner. It was held of a push-button automatic world, 
in which all answers came freely. Nothing was said about the work that went into producing the thermostat, nor the new industries it furthered, nor the new kinds of work it made possible. It was seen only as a step forward towards the dream of instant paradise in a ready-made world. I did not know it then, but those teachers were preparing the way for the return of a faith in magic and witchcraft. But our Lord said, quote, First the blade, unquote. Done any planning lately? Or are you waiting for someone with the right hocus-pocus? If so, you will die with this dying, non-Christian era. Don't count on us sending flowers. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.